0: Chapter 16, Brexit, page 34. In the run-ups to the 23rd June 2016 referendum, Brexit did not not look like a difficult issue within Labour. We now know that Seamus Mill and Andrew Murray, key figures in Corbyn's inner circle, voted Leave on 23rd June. They weren't saying that then. Almost the whole Labour movement and left was united for a Remain vote, barring the Morning Star, the Socialist and Socialist Worker, but Socialist Worker was visibly embarrassed about its Leave stance. The 1970s anti-EUism of the Labour Lefts and the Unions had been fading for decades, since Thatcherism and the Social Europe talk of the late 1980s. The visit by EU Commission President Jacques Delors to the 1988 TUC Congress signalled a turning point. Jeremy Corbyn, like most of those previously educated in that 1970s anti-EUism had long since, though as we would see within the reservations, accepted that Brexit was in fact a right-wing project. After the fiasco of Labour's joint campaign with the Tories in the 2014 Scottish Independence Referendum no one on the Labour right disputed that Labour should make a distinct effort for Remain, rather than merging into the Tory domination dominated official Britain Stronger in Europe campaign. Workers' Liberty had opposed anti EUism since the nineteen sixties, even when almost all others on the left were anti EU. We worked to get a distinctive distinctly, distinctly left wing and working class Remain voice in the campaign an argument based on cross-border workers' unity to level up, on reducing borders especially to workers' free movement, and on the proposition that erecting new borders would only sharpen competitive capitalist pressures to entice investment to one side or another by reducing social overheads. That was difficult. We could win votes in momentum for that idea, but not get momentum to push it publicly. John Macdonald made some good speeches speeches in the, re, the referendum campaign, but as an individual. We worked to build on the somewhat NGO-ish Another Europe is Possible campaign, which presented <clears throat> some of the ideas we wanted, though in an idiom of progressive cr- cross partyism. <coughs> greens, Plaid Cymru, Friends of the Earth, etc., Everyone's responses were shaped by the expectation that Remain would win, as the opinion polls indicated it would right up to 23rd of June, and that would probably sideline the issues for years to come. Leave won. The Labour right ceased on the shock to try to unseat Corbyn with rolling shadow cabinet resignations and a vote of no confidence in him by Labour MPs. They said that Corbyn had been weak in the referendum campaign. It was true but the labour right had been even weaker, though in the person of Alan Johnson it held the franchise to run Labour's independent efforts. Corbyn saw out the challenge, retaining the sport of the unions and winning a new leadership contest by a bigger margin than in 2015. We now know that finding even a half-workable formula for Brexit within the demagogically vague parameters defined by the 2016 leave campaign would take the Tories four and a half years after June 2016, and even after four and a half years the formula would, at best, only half workable. The rational response from Corbyn's Labour to the 23rd June result should have been to point out that what Brexit meant was undefined, and that the narrow snap vote should not be taken to give the Tories a mandate for whatever formula they might cook up, still less to mandate Labour to support that yet undefined formula. The issue should be reconsidered when the Tories had a formula to propose, and in the meantime Labour would continue a principled opposition to raising new barriers between countries. Jeremy Corbyn, however, responded on 24th June by calling on the Tories to activate Article 50, The formal opening of Brexit procedures, immediately. Corbyn would continue to defend free movement between Britain and the EU 27 until November 2016, but with little support in Labour's top ranks, none from John McDonnell, and none from Momentum. He eventually collapsed on that issue too. The Tories quickly committed themselves to a hard version of Brexit, but would not activate Article 50 until February 2017. When they did, Corbyn put a three-line whip to back the Tories. 47 Labour MPs voted against, and several shadow cabinet members, mostly from the left, resigned in order to vote against. The best guess must be that Corbyn's advisers, their perceptions skewed by their own private pro-Brexit views, thought on 24th of June 2016, that the Tories would be pushing through Brexit easily and soon. Their perceptions further skewed by a manipulative and catchpenny philosophy of politics. Corbyn advisers thought that a Labour "Do It Now" declaration on 24th of June would be clever politics. Labour would be would both be seen as accepting the will of the people and able soon to make gains by showing the bad results of the Tories Brexit. In fact they were condemning Corbyn Labour to years of torment in which its sense of principle and its credibility would be destroyed by successive contortions. Labour would try to run on the claim that they could negotiate a good Brexit while the Tories lacking that negotiating skill. Labour would vote for a Brexit deal but only one which met vague and incoherent tests. Then, in the end, in December 2020, Labour under Keir Starmer voted for Boris Johnson's deal, manifested, manifestly meeting none of the tests, with little protest from Corbynites, though Corbyn himself abstained. Labour opposed a second referendum, and then, under pressure from the Labour base and an electorate increasingly disillusioned with Brexit, it edged towards being for it, but only in certain forms and under certain conditions, never clearly defined and never met. All working-class socialist and internationalist principles was abandoned, and yet pro-Brexit voters would still see Labour as quibbling. Some argue that Labour had no choice but to back Brexit after June 2016, and it was with its failure to do so that it lost its that lost it the December 2019 election. About a third of Labour voters had voted leave on 23rd June 2016, but around the same proportion of Scottish National Party voters had gone for leave. The SNP kept its opposition to Brexit and didn't lose votes, mainly because those pro-Leave voters thought other issues which rallied them to the SNP were more important. Labour could have done similarly and convinced many in the pro-Brexit minority of its base on the Brexit issue too, but only by keeping up a sharp agitation on cuts, the NHS and social provision through the whole period. It didn't. By its equivoc- equivoc- equivocation, Labour only made voters see it as equivocating. The June 2017 general election was a partial but instructive exception. Then, Labour's manifesto accepted Brexit, but in the small print. Most voters saw Labour as anti-Brexit, or at least softer Brexit. A strong anti-cuts message pulled them to Labour against a Tory party calling for a strong and stable majority, precisely so that it hoped it would be well-placed to do Brexit. Corbyn Labour's failure on Brexit destroyed its claim to represent new principle and consistency in politics. It was also a failure of hopes for party democracy. At all the decisive points after 23rd June 2016, policies were handed down from above, but rather than being democratically discussed with and decided by the always anti-Brexit party membership, The leadership kept Brexit off the agenda for both 2016 and 2017 conferences with the active help of Momentum in 2017. By the 2018 conference, it could no longer keep Brexit off the agenda. It engineered a single-fudged composite motion to come to conference floor so that there would be no debate. Some of the anti-Brexit left at the time, adopted a hopeful reading of the fudge to claim it as a victory. As they came to recognise later, sometimes much later, it wasn't. Workers' Liberty people at conference were, for the moment, swept along by the hopeful mood, but one of us had been the last out in the com- compositing meeting against the one-motion ploy, and we soon recovered our balance. The Brexit debate pushed back all possibilities for the new Labour Party membership to re-educate itself and to equip itself to go out and educate and win over others in workplaces and in neighbourhoods. It put a lid on the hopeful possibilities of 2015 on several fronts, on the opening out of party democracy, on the re-education of a new contingent of activists, on offering the wider electorate, an honest politics of principle in place of manipulation and soft soaping. Chapter 17, Anti Semitism, page 37. That anti Semitism would befoul the Corbyn era, both in reality and in the electorate's perception of it, was also unpredictable, but maybe not as unpredictable as with Brexit. As of 2015, Workers' Liberty had been arguing for some 30 years that the left had become tainted by anti-Semitism. Much far-left thinking on Israel, the world's only majority Jewish state, whose history is inextricably bound up with the history of anti-Semitism, had been shaped by an absolute anti-Zionist perspective that insisted that Israeli Jews should be denied national self-determination. For the sake of supposed anti-imperialism, Israel should be replaced by an arable Islamic state from the river to the sea, and the Jews would have to flee or accept subject status. That had its roots in the view of world politics as a matter of two camps, imperialism, meaning the USA and its allies, and revolution, meaning the USA's opponents, however imperialistic, propagated by Stalinism, and by a wider third-worldist left in the 1960s and 70s. We defended the traditional pre-Stalinist socialist approach to national oppression, which today impels solidarity with the Palestinians and support for equality between Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews, including equal national rights, two nations, two states that the absolute anti-Zionist line was utterly unreal as a practical program, useless to win redress for the Palestinians in the real world, did not diminish its noxiousness as a preconceived attitude to the only compact Jewish population in the world and to the Jews' worldwide Zionists, who, by inescapably shaping of history, felt affinity and sympathy with that population. The absolute Zionists and the absolute anti-Zionists did not think themselves as anti-Semitic. On the contrary, they considered themselves the most virtuous anti-racists. Israel not only had racist policies, as more or less every existing state does; it was in in essence and in, inescapably a racist state. It's crushing, even by Islamist clerical fascists like Hamas like Iran's rulers would thus be anti-racist. This political anti-Semitism was distinct from the old-fashioned biological anti-Semitism of the right which abhorred all Jews because of supposed inherited traits. The political anti-Semites of the left would defend synagogues against attacks by neo-Nazis. They would feel no necessary personal animosity to individual Jews they might even be proud of being Jews themselves. They could claim that that their hostility to Zionists was not to an identity imprinted on most Jews by history, but only to a particular political choice. In the 1970s, the Abolish Israel program had been expressed on the left in hopeful but naive terms. There should be a secular democratic state in all the territory of British Mandate Palestine, uniting Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs as one people. But how? Free unity is possible only if it is voluntary on both sides. How of all the world's neighbouring peoples can those two, at war on and off for decades, insecure in the national rights, be the first to think the right to self-rule now superfluous, the first to have high assurance that friendly merger would give them all they wanted, Long before 2015, the naive hope had begun to curdle. Talk of a secular democratic state faded in favour of root and branch denunciation of Israel, usually with no positive alternative expressed, but usually also with the implication that no progress could be achieved as long as anything at all like Israel survived, and that anything Hamas or Hezbollah might do against Israel was justified. Those who dropped the secular democratic state slogan generally continued the opposition to a two-states policy. If pressed, they would sometimes say that the answer was socialism in the entire region. The Morning Star remained on paper for two states, but the Communist Party of Britain agitated vehemently for boycotting Israel. The Morning Star declared that there was little point protesting about anti-Semitism Quotes, "until its root cause israel's criminal behavior is dealt with" End the paper eventually apologized for that declaration but its tone continued to inform the coverage if two states was in the small print the suggestion was more that this was a concession which might be allowed if israel amended its ways improbably well rather than that it was the only way to recognise the democratic self-determination of both peoples, Palestinian and Israeli Jewish. The Morning Star loudly supported the right to return, meaning the right for maybe 7 million grandchildren and other descendants of 1948 refugees collectively to repossess the territory which is now Israel, a demand different from individual freedom of movement with and incompatible with two states. Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 was a long-standing Star columnist. He was also a long-standing associate of people around the Stop the War coalition, who plainly supported wiping out Israel. He had supported Palestinian rights as an MP, but no more vocally than others, such as Emily Thornberry and Lisa Nandy, who had supported support for the right of Israel to exist and criticism of Hamas. Corbyn supported the right of return, but marginally and without apparent understanding of its conflict, with the support he also expressed more loudly for two states. He opposed boycotting Israel. He must have known he was differentiating from the Morning Star. Maybe, having paid much attention in the decades before 2015 to Latin America, who was influenced by Cuba's rapprochement with Israel. I don't know. In October 2014, Ed Miliband, as Labour leader, whipped Labour MPs to support a symbolic commons vote to recognise Palestine as a state. The Tories mostly abstained. The Jewish Board of Deputies complained, but the row was small. No Labour MP voted against. Jeremy Corbyn, oddly, acted as a teller for the most mostly Tory and DUP MPs voting against, but that was presumably some parliamentary technicality. In june twenty twenty, after Corbyn was ousted, the new Foreign Secretary, Lisa Nandy, called for Britain to ban imports of West Bank settlement products if Israel annexed the West Bank or large part of it. In the Corbyn era, However, for example, in the 2017 and 2019 Labour manifestos, there was no significant shift in Labour policy on Israel-Palestine. It remains a party for two states, but with little or no act of solidarity to help achieve that. The outcry against anti-Semitism in Labour under Corbyn was not an attempt to deflect or discredit some more energetic solidarity with Palestinian rights, it was not, as the Morning Star claimed, it was a ploy, quotes, to prevent a rare parliamentary champion of the rights of the Palestinian people from achieving the highest political office in Britain, end quotes, 9th of April 2019. It was not even an adult argument about the policy of a general boycott of Israel and its anti-Semitic implications. In autumn 2015, Luke Akehurst, a pro-Israel doyen of the Labour right, expressed worry about a vote on boycotting Israel being brought to Labour conference, which it might pass thanks to United Unison Union policy. He estimated that Corbyn and his team would probably avoid that, which they did, and with little trouble. The outcry was about what it said on the tin, anti-Semitism. Shadow Chancellor John Macdonald had a worse backstory on the issue than Corbyn. In 1985, he was briefly editor of Labour Herald, a paper launched by the rancidly anti-Semitic Workers' Revolutionary Party of Gerry Healy, with Ken Livingston and Ted Knight as the initial frontmen. Macdonald, however, had rethought and relearned. He said of the outcry on anti-Semitism, it isn't a smear campaign. I've seen the evidence. 6th February 2019 Those making the outcry sometimes exaggerated and some of them had other reasons to pick up anything that discredited Corbyn. That was utterly secondary to the evidence of substance. Chapter 18, page 40 April 2016 ends Ken Livingstone The row was only a muttering until April 2016 when Ken Livingstone got himself suspended from Labour. Someone had dug out an old social media post from Naz Shah, Labour MP for Bradford West, reproducing an image saying that the solution for the Israel-Palestine conflict was for Israel to be relocated into the USA, a coded form of drive the Jews out, with the assumption that once they were driven out... The usa would let them in unlike in the 1930s or 40s shah quickly apologized and remains an MP. but ken livingston approached the media to offer comments he said he said that shah had done nothing wrong he asserted as if that proved his case that hitler had supported zionism this was a garbled version of the story of a deal which the jewish community in palestine made with the nazis To enable some jews to escape from germany to palestine with some of their property and he refused to retract or apologize livingston's declarations had no connection at all with supporting palestinian rights the same would be true of practically all the anti-semitic comments which circulated in and around corbyn labor and which caused outcry many or most of them in fact would not be smash-Israel-type anti-Zionism, but straight old-fashioned anti-Semitism, Rothschild's conspiracy, Jewish power stuff. Corbyn's own moralistic rather than structural critique of capitalism and his leadership's use of populist concepts like the rigged economy, implying a conspiracy of nefarious rigging by evil people behind the scenes rather than explaining capitalism, as a structure of class exploitation within which we have power as members of the working class, left Corbynism equally ill-equipped to combat eruptions of those primitive would-be anti-finance and anti-capitalist forms of anti-Semitism. These were given fertile soil and accompanied by the political anti-Semitism of absolute anti-Zionism, which people like Livingstone had carried for decades. To get from that to more old-fashioned anti-Semitism, you had only to shift the labels in the conspiracy theory frame to name the villain as Jewish financiers or Rothschild's bankers rather than Israel, the lobby and Zionism. Livingston had from end 1981 to 1985 worked closely with Jerry Healy's Workers' Revolutionary Party, which by then was in the pay of the Iraqi and Libyan regimes. It announced socialist organiser, forerunner of solidarity and workers' liberty, as part of a worldwide Zionist connection with Reagan, Thatcher, etc., because we reported on its financial connections. Livingston remained close to Healy after the WRP blew up in scandal. In 1994, he wrote a laudatory introduction to a laudatory biography of Healy, by then, despite his residual sympathy for Healy-type revolutionism, the once-left Livingston had become, a, on most issues, a middle-of-the-road Labour careerist. He ran as an independent for Mayor of London in 2000 after narrowly losing a Riggs selection and won. Blair readmitted Livingston to the Labour Party in time for the 2004 mayoral election, and Livingston served as Labour mayor in 2004 to eight. He was suspended from office for a month in February 2006 by a legal panel because of anti-Semitic jibes against a Jewish journalist in February 2005. At an appeal hearing in October 2006, the judge found the suspension invalid on procedural grounds, though Livingston's jibes. Offensive and indefensible. Livingston lost to the Tories in 2008 and in 2012 and then indicated he was retiring from frontline politics. In, Mem- in November 2015, Corbyn brought the elderly Livingston back to co convene Labour's defence policy review with pro Trident Shadow Minister Ma- Maria Eagle. Why, I'm not clear. Corbyn's team had evidently already decided that challenging Labour's policy for Trident replacement was too hard. Anyway, Corbyn brought Livingstone back on the scene, and then Livingstone pushed himself forward to be the high-profile Labour defender of the Facebook post, which Shah herself called indefensible. It was Livingstone who took the initiative to blow up the anti-Semitism row, not an anti-Corbynite. Arbitrary exclusions of left-wingers were running high at the time, as they did from summer 2015 until after the 2016 Labour leadership election, but those were exclusions for having associated with left-wing groups with no reference to anti-Semitism. Why Livingston did it, we don't know. As we wrote at the time, he is a Livingston-serving opportunist, not a principled politician who will stand by his version of the truth irrespective of his consequences. He knows perfectly well that he's helping the Labour right and the Tories sever Labour's election campaign for the May 2016 local elections. He wants to do that. Why? The explanation may lie in Livingston's dual character. Inside the supremely self-centred Manipulative politician, Dr. Jekyll Livingston, there is imprisoned, a contrary, irrational, egotistic Mr. Hyde Livingston, who sometimes takes over. Who knows? Labour suspended Livingston. He complains, uh, uh, end of quotes, who knows? Labour suspended Livingston. He complained, protested, but eventually subsided or lost the attention of the media. He resigned from the Labour Party in 2018 before his case reached a Labour disciplinary tribunal. Corbyn went along with the suspension of Livingstone but made no substantive comment on what Livingstone had done. Quotes, There's no crisis. Where there is any anti-racism in the party, it will be dealt with and rooted out. I've been an anti-racist campaigner all my life. There is no prob- There's not a problem with anti-Semitism. We are totally opposed to anti-Semitism in any form within the party. The very small number of cases that have been brought to our attention have been dealt with swiftly and immediately, and they will be, end quotes. The response would feed and define the downward spiral of the next four and a half years. More and more social media posts, expressing often the crudest anti-Semitism, would circulate. Some Labour activists, like Jackie Walker, would do a Livingston, <coughs> gratuitously seeking media attention or comments, which at the very least they knew to be offensive to Jewish Labour members, and which could serve no conceivable Palestinian solidarity purpose. There would be a real life overspill, even if often in the <coughs> indirect form where Jewish members complaining about anti Semitism would instantly find themselves denounced as agents of a right-wing stitch-up. Some of it would target individual Jewish members, such as Luciana Berger, not a left-winger, but initially in September 2015, a prominent Corbyn ally, appointed by him with much fanfare as the first-ever front-bench spokesperson on mental health. Berger eventually quit Labour in February 2019, and after a short spell, with a feeble Change UK splinter group, joined the Lib Dems. As the rouse swelled on and on, Corbyn would still say there was no problem, or if there was one, it was just that Labour's growth was statistically certain to draw in the odd bad apple. He himself had been an anti-racist all his life. Ergo, no real problem. He was unable, or more likely unwilling, to recognise that some of the political anti-Semites considered themselves the best anti-racists and anti-fascists, that in fact they thought their reflex hostility to reflexly Israel-empathising Jews was a sign of anti-racist virtue because they identified Zionists as ipso facto the world's most potent racists. In March 2018, Corbyn put himself centre stage when he responded to the scout discovery of an old Facebook post in which he had objected to the taking down by Tower Hamlets Council, led by an ex Labour labor soft Islamist, of an anti-Semitic mural by saying evasively that, quote, I sincerely regret that I did not look more closely at the image I was commenting on, end quote. Note, regret, not apologise. Late in 2018, Corbyn and his office ran a long rearguard action to try to stop Labour's national executive adopting the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance text on anti-Semitism, and in particular the clause indicating that in some circumstances it was anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic to, quote, claim that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavour, end quotes. The text licenses criticism of Israel, as of any other state, for racist policies. It censures only claims that the very existence in whatever form, with whatever policy changes of any Israeli state, is in and of itself racist. First, Labour adopted a code based on the IHRA text, but pointedly admitted that omitting that clause. Then, when the full text was pushed through, Corbyn's office still, unsuccessfully, sought a garbled qualification that it would deem it, quote, not anti-Semitic to describe Israel, its policies, or the circumstances around its foundation as racist. in quotes, racist circumstances. At no point did Corbyn or his office confront the culture of left anti-Semitism which ha- had washed into labour with many of the returners, explain what was wrong with it, promote debate and education. Dave Rich of the Jewish community, Charity CST, put it to Solidarity, all we hear is, it's just 0.1% of the membership, and we'll discipline them and throw them out. Corbyn was always walking backwards, forced to concede one concern after another about anti-Semitism, but always grudgingly, reluctantly, and to the smallest extent you could get away with. By November 2019, a poll would find 44% of people thinking the chief rabbi right to comment on the 2019 election with worries about Labour being anti-Semitic, and only 27% thinking him wrong. Some in Corbyn's shadow cabinet did better, notably John Macdonald and Emily Thornberry, but they never did enough or gained enough weight to offset Corbyn's evasions, and most of the left were unwilling to criticize Corbyn. Corbyn himself was unwilling or unable to sink through the issues. His office staff was dominated by people like Seamus Milne and Andrew Murray, who were aligned with the Morning Star's demonization of Israel and whose standard response to all political problems was to manage and manipulate them rather than seeking honest debate. According to the journalistic investigators Gabriel Pogrand and Patrick Maguire, even at times when the office staff, for reasons of ordinary prudence, would have favoured simple apologies, Corbyn was swayed by long-term associates from the 1970s and 1980s generation. These were not returners, in the full sense of people who had been out of politics completely in the interim, rather people who had been radicals or revolutionaries in the 70s, settled down for decades to low-key Labour Party activity, signalled to themselves as still radical by such stances as against Israel, and then felt themselves on the winner again after 2015. In any case, the standard limiting factors of the Corbyn era, the failure to draw in young activists, the shortage of debate and education, the focus on hopes of Corbyn 4pm, rather than rebuilding in class struggle and the influence of Morningstar-type politics were allowed to have deadly effects. Chapter 19, Curbs on Debate, Curbs on Development, page 44 In 2019, Clen Livingston at first agreed to debate workers' liberty at our summer school on Zionism and anti-Semitism. I don't know why, but he confirmed and reconfirmed a few weeks before the event a few weeks before the event and surprisingly unsurprisingly to us, he withdrew pleading domestic difficulties and saying anyway he was retired from politics. We approached seven different people from the absolute anti-zionist left to take the speaking slot. They didn't have to identify with Livingston, only to take chance to criticize our views in front of our loosest friends and associates. All refused. Throughout the, the whole Corbin era, our repeated attempts to get debates on the issue in our own workers' liberty meetings or sponsored by local labor parties or momentum groups produced only one or two results. Generally, the absolute anti Zionists would not debate rather than snipping on social media. In July twenty eighteen, with the help of Another Europe is Possible, we were able to generate a face-to-face debate on Brexit. Grace Brakeley versus Michael Chesham. In twenty nineteen Paul Embury debated Ruth Cashman on Brexit at our summer school ideas for freedom. A few other debates were set up Twice, for example, we got agreements from Aaron Bastani, prominent labour circles through, through his work in Novara Media, to bait with us on Brexit. Once he withdrew a few hours before the meeting, the other time he just didn't turn up. Given that the previous 20 years had been the era of Blair, Brown and Cameron, and with only sporadic resistance, it was inescapable that the labour left reassembled in 2015 would be politically unformed, chaotic and burdened with much dross. Discussion, debate, polemic, education could have changed that quickly. Despite momentum saying that the the world transformed would provide just that, there was very little basic debate. From the top, Labour politics in the Corbyn era was still largely managed, as it had been in the Blair era. Nearer the base, polemic and debate was largely displaced by social media flaming. The Morningstar published an article, 26 July 2019, with the shape of an actual polemic against workers' liberty over our efforts in the Free Our Unions campaign. It argued that the campaign was too absolutist in its push for repealing all anti-strike laws, that it distracted unnecessarily from other campaigns at their and that the involvement of an allegedly minuscule political sect, let i.e. Workers' Liberty, made that campaign insufficiently broad-based. Apart from that Morning Star article, polemical comments within the Labour Left in the Corbyn era mostly took the form not of articles and arguments, but of social media snippets exposing this or that group or this or that person on the grounds of this or that phrase extracted. From context and branded racist or whatever. As we commented, discussion of language can and frequently does displace discussion of things and ideas. Consideration of the substantive argument in an article, for example, would be pushed aside in favor of anathematizing the choice of words in some selected sentence. There was much criticism of anti Semitism, which was perforce of odd sentences and small passages, because the anti Semitism was most expressed in social media snippets, rather than anything long form. Often even justified criticism included little effort to explain why the snippet was anti Semitic. It was just an exposure. It elicited not counter argument and debate, but instead such responses as quotes I retweeted such and such without reading it carefully and you're targeting me just to serve Israeli interests, end In that area, careful long-term explanations were circulated. We circulated three pamphlets, Left Antisemitism, Two Nations, Two States, and Arabs, Jews and Socialism. Dave Rich and Dave Hirsch published books, The Left's Jewish Problems, Contemporary Left Antisemitism, with explanation. Steve, Steve Cohen's That's Funny, You Don't Look Anti-Semitic was republished. There was little attempt at long-form reply. Generally polemic, even unsound polemic, like the morning stars referred to above, was displaced in the culture of, of the left by a fever of social media flaming. Thomas Carlyle called the French Revolution of 1789-93 a whirlpool of words. Leon Trotsky wrote that revolutions are always verbose and showed that the run-up to the Russian Revolution in, in October 1917 was days full of intense meetings, discussions, debates and not in fact barricades or even strikes. France's May 1968 is known for its Night of the Barricades but much more of it was about innumerable meetings and arguments in workplace and campus occupations in action committees and day to day on the streets. The Corbyn surge was always going to be tamer than those great events. Its whirlpool of of words was, however, not only smaller, it had its stones set off by the offhand tweet more than the speech or article coming up as part of a debate, even of an ill-tempered or flawed debate.